I love Isaiah 46. We're not going to spend time in the whole chapter, but it is a tremendous chapter because it basically begins by reminding the people of Israel that all the heathen gods had to be carried about by the heathen, but that our God carries us. Ever think about that? Uh, the passage goes on and says how they get all their gold and they throw it into somebody and, and he makes their God for them. And as soon as he makes their God, they take it and they begin to carry it around and they set it up somewhere and they fall down and worship it and then they pray to it. It's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? But we have a God who carries us. And we have a God who is of absolute authority and power. And Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God, wants us to understand that and come to grips with it. And so here's what he says, beginning in verse 9. He says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Let me ask you something. If you and I don't turn to God, where do you turn? In time of trial, trouble, heartache, whatever it might be, if you and I don't turn to God, where else is there? I had a chance to talk to a couple not so long ago, and at first it seemed like the gal was going to be the toughest one, and the fellow might be a little easier. As we got into things, she was very tender, and he got pretty hard. And he wanted to tell me how he was an evolutionist and he began to make fun of the Bible. And it boiled down to this. I said, sir, you know, evolution can't do one thing for you. And this was a couple really in trouble. And their only hope was God. And that's your only hope. That's my only hope. God says, I am God. There is none else. There's no place else to turn. Sometimes people get upset with God and, and we question God and we wonder about God. But there is none else, just Him. He reminds us of some of the truths of Him when He says in verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God says, I'm God, there is none else, I'm the only one. He says, I am the one, by the way, who declares the end from the beginning. God says, first of all, I can tell you how everything started. Nobody else can, but I can tell you. I declare the end from the beginning. I was back there and I did it and I can tell you how everything got started. He said, not only that, but I can also tell you how everything's going to end. Now, nobody else can do that. I'll tell you how it started, I'll tell you how it's going to end. People have their ideas. Other people will try to tell you how things started. God says, I did it. People have all kinds of ideas how it's going to end. God says, I can tell you. He says, I have a plan. I started it all, I'm going to end it all. So where else do you turn if not to Him? He goes on and says, as we've already read, My counsel shall stand. I will do all my Pleasure. God does what He wants to do. God does what He wants to do with us. God has the right to do whatever He wants to do in our lives. If we understand the book of Revelation properly, we are informed there that you and I have been created for the pleasure of God. That's why you and I exist. Sometimes we think, don't I have any rights? 
You know, isn't there some place for me to make decisions and do what I want to do? No, not really. You and I have been created for the pleasure of God, and when we reckon with that and deal with that and submit to that, we are happiest. He illustrates how he does all his pleasure in verse 11 when he says, calling a ravenous bird from the east. God says, you know, when I do whatever I want to do, sometimes I use the animal kingdom. As with Elijah, he said, Elijah, you go hide by the brook Cherith. I'll feed you because I'll send the ravens and they will feed you there. He says, I do what I want to do. I can use the ravens to get my will done. Or he says, uh, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. He says, I also move people around. I step into the life of people and I move them around for my pleasure to get done what I want done. He goes on and says, yea, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. That's sovereignty. Now look what he says in the next verse. It reads like this. Hearken unto me, ye stout-hearted, that are far from righteousness. Now the term stout-hearted can sometimes be used in a very positive way. You know, give me some men who are stout-hearted men. But look, the term itself actually means stubborn. And what God is saying in this verse, hearken unto me ye stubborn. God is saying this to us. He's saying, so why don't you listen to me? Stubborn. That's what he's saying. In other words, the picture is this. I am God. I do whatever I want to do. I created the world. I've put it all into motion. I'll tell you what I did to start it. Tell you what I'm going to do to end it. I do all my good pleasure. I've got a plan. I've got counsel. I carry it out. Everything I want to do is going to get done because I'm God. I'm in charge. So why don't you listen to me? Why don't you listen to me? This is God's way of lifting himself up before us and saying, I am a God of absolute authority. And I can do in your life whatever I want to do. Let's see what I would perhaps call the New Testament reinforcement of that truth in Philippians chapter 2 where here we are introduced to that same authority, but in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, we are reminded of our Savior leaving the glory of heaven and coming to this earth to die for us, to die the death of the cross. And then in verse 9, we read this, Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. At the name of Jesus every knee is to bow. And then he expands that for us with three little phrases. The first phrase is this, of things in heaven. Now what's in heaven tonight? Well, there's people in heaven. You and I know of people who have died believing in Christ and they've gone to heaven. They're in heaven tonight. At the name of Jesus, their knee is to bow. And then there's the angelic realm that God has created. The Bible says God created an innumerable company of angels. 
Some of them rebelled against him and went with the devil, but there's a host of angels, still no doubt innumerable in number, and they bow at the name of Jesus. And then there's the unique angelic beings, the seraphim and the cherubim and Michael the archangel, perhaps some other things we're not fully aware of, but there's a host of the created beings of God in heaven. And at the name of Jesus, every one of them bows the knee. The next little phrase says, and things in earth. And that's us. Some six billion people on the face of this earth, many will not bow to the Lord Jesus Christ, though someday they will. And every one of us are told that at the name of Jesus, we are to bow the knee. We'll talk about what that means in a moment. But then there is yet another little phrase, and things under the earth. And that's a reference, no doubt, to Satan and his hosts and the multitudes of people who have died and gone to hell. And today they say, yes, he is Lord. And today they bow the knee, as it were. They have to admit who he is. And someday the devil himself will bow. Yes, he is Lord. In other words, there is a challenge given to us. We are to bow before Christ. We ought to understand what that means. I imagine many in this congregation, as was my experience, was raised in a Roman Catholic setting. I don't know how much you know about the Catholic Church, but you might know this, that the Catholic Church has a center aisle, and whenever people in the Catholic Church go across the center aisle, they do something. Anybody know what they do? What do they do? They genuflect. They look toward the front. Sometimes they cross themselves, but they always genuflect. That means they go down on one knee. Now, the reason they do that is because the Roman Catholic Church teaches, as you may know, that when they have their communion, the priest consecrates what they call the host, the element of communion. They believe that the bread, this little host, actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And when they have their communion, they go and hand it out to everybody. Everybody gets their communion. And then whatever is left over, they take, gather up, put it in a little gold cup. They take that little gold cup called the chalice. They put it up in a little gold box in the front of the church called the tabernacle. And there, all week long, that gold cup is in that tabernacle. And therein is, according to their belief, Jesus. I'm sure glad I got saved out of that. But what happens, see, when they cross the front of the church or the center of the church and they look up front, you know what they think? They think Jesus is up there. And the more I think about that, the more I realize how idolatrous I was before I got saved. I'm glad God saved me. I'm sure many of you feel that way too. But there is an element of truth. They bow the knee to what they think is Jesus. Now, that is not what you and I are supposed to do. We're not supposed to go anywhere and bow the knee because our Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven tonight, seated at the right hand of the Father, and someday He's coming back. But the challenge that is here for us is not this physical bowing of the knee. It is, however, the bowing of the knee of your heart. It's something going on inside of you that says, I acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. 
And that includes his deity, but it includes his lordship. His right to run our lives. Because he is the God of absolute authority. Look with me to another place. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You're familiar with these verses. Where Paul wrote to the believers of Corinth and said in verses 19 and 20, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I'll never forget the night I got saved. I was in an old-fashioned tent revival, wooden chairs, sawdust, tent. The evangelist preached. I knew I needed to get saved. Finally, in the fourth verse of Softly and Tenderly, I turned to Tricia, now my wife, then my girlfriend. I said, I need to go forward. And she walked that aisle with me, and that night I trusted Christ as my Savior. I'll never forget it. I left that place that night knowing this. I'm not going to hell anymore. I'm going to heaven. Isn't that wonderful? You're there, aren't you? I hope. It was sometime later, however, I don't know exactly when, certainly not as dramatic an experience, but somewhere along the line, God communicated this message to me. He said, you know, when you got saved, you were real excited about going to heaven. Yeah, boy, that's great. He said, there's one other thing you need to know. When I saved you, I bought you. And you don't belong to you anymore. When I saved you, I laid claim to you, and now you belong to me. You are now to glorify me in your body and in your spirit, which are mine. So you and I belong to God. In other words, you and I don't have the right to run our lives. You and I don't have the right to make decisions for ourselves. You and I don't have the right to plan our life because we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. God has the right to step into your life and my life and do absolutely anything He wants to do. If He decides to take our health, that's His business. If He decides to take our life, that's His business. If He decides to take our mate, that's His business. If He decides to take our sight or our legs or whatever it might be, that's His business because we belong to Him. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. God says, I bought you. You belong to me. And I can do with you anything I want to do. Now again, it is the wise Christian who understands that, comes to grips with that and says, Lord, I understand you are right. I bow my knee in acknowledgement of your lordship. And I say to you, Lord, I realize you can do with me whatever you want. Here I am. Here's my life the songwriter wrote, I lay it on the altar. Have you done that? Here's my life, I lay it on the altar. It's the heart of Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, 
holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. There's too many people who are trying to run their own lives, do whatever they want to do, instead of coming to grips with the absolute authority of God. Now, God does not exercise His authority in direct ways often. Many times I wish He would. Wouldn't it be great if when you're wrestling with a problem, say, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, all of a sudden this voice would come from heaven? Alan Griffith, do this. Thank you. You ever been there? Wouldn't that be great? Oh, man, I'll tell you, in my life there have been times, oh, if only the Lord would just say, this is what I want you to do. Kind of with Jack McGlennon. Go to Bethel. Right? It doesn't happen. If you think it does happen, you talk to pastor. Because it doesn't happen. How does God exercise his authority in our lives? Well, certainly he directs us through the scriptures. Someone said, never knew who said it, but somebody said 90% of the will of God is found in the word of God. That's probably very close to being true. Want to know what God wants you to do? Right here. But at the same time, God of himself has established other authorities. And God wants to direct your life through the authorities that he has established. None of these authorities answer to themselves. They all answer to God, but they've all been established by God. Let's see some of them. Romans chapter 13. The first authority God has set up that we'll consider is government. Romans 13 says this, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Look at verse 4. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God. A revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Hey, that's government. Now you and I don't always like government. You and I don't always like people who are in government. But never forget the system was ordained by God. Sometimes people read something like this say, boy, you think God understood the kind of government we were going to have when he wrote that? Listen, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote that, lived under the Roman Empire. The most horrible, wicked government there's ever been. Paul knew what he was doing. God knew what he was doing when he said to you and me, those in government are ministers of God. We just wish they knew that. But you and I need to know it. Because what it boils down to is that you and I, as born-again Christians, are supposed to be the best citizens there are in our local community, in our state, in our nation. Now, the question, anytime you talk about authority, the question that always comes up is, well, when don't I have to obey? Isn't that always the question? When don't I have to obey? The only time you don't have to obey the authorities that God has put over you is when those authorities make you choose between God and themselves. And if they ever make you make that choice, you have to choose God. Daniel understood that. 
Darius said, hey, for 30 days you can't pray or ask anything of anybody except me. And if you do, you're going to the lion's den. Daniel said, listen, I've been praying three times a day, every day to God with my windows open. I'm not about to stop now. If I have to go in the lion's den, I will. But I will continue to pray. I must obey God. And so he disobeyed the authority because the authority made him choose between the authority and God. Notice when they put him in the lion's den, he didn't stab anybody, blow up anything, whatever. He just said, okay, I make my choice and I'll pay the price, but I will serve God. And he did. That kind of thing happens very rarely. If it ever does happen, then make sure you understand the issue. It happens very rarely. For the most part, you and I should be the best citizens we can be. There's another area. Look at Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul is again writing in his day, and he's actually writing to the slaves. The slaves of the Roman Empire had no rights at all. Some of them got saved, and Paul never advocated that they be set free necessarily. He did tell them how to live as Christians. And I think there's an application of this exhortation. And I think the application is to those of us who go out every day into the workaday world and have human people who are over us and we have to respond to their authority. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 says this, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Today, if you went out to work, you had a master according to the flesh. And you might not like him, you might not like what he tells you to do, but you are there as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. And your challenge is to obey those who are over you in the flesh, not as a man pleaser, not with eye service, not just when the boss is looking. That's the idea. But you're supposed to do your best for the Lord. The next verse makes it a little clearer when it says... Verse 23, and whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Say, well, I don't like my boss. I don't like the foreman. I don't like the way they operate over there. Well, whatsoever you do, you do it heartily for the Lord. If you work the assembly line, you work it for Christ. If you're out selling, you sell for Christ. If you're involved in some other way where you work, you're there for Christ. Whatsoever you do, you do it heartily, not for the company, but for the Lord. And the next verse says, Knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Sometimes Christians say, well, you know, I am a Christian. Everybody knows it over there. I get bypassed when it comes time for promotion and raises. They just bypass me because they know I'm a Christian. That's okay. You will receive the reward of your inheritance from the Lord. Sometimes, on the other hand, there are Christians who have this attitude. You know, if I really make a stand for Christ over there, I'll never get ahead. Therefore, I have to go real easy on my Christianity because if I don't, I won't get promotions and I, I will not get raises. I won't be able to climb the ladder. Therefore, I have to be very, very careful. One of the standout characters of the Bible in my mind 
is the boy David. And the reason he stands out, of course, there are many reasons, but in this particular instance, the reason David stands out in my mind is because David never aspired to be a king. At least I don't see that anywhere. He never grew up saying, you know, I'd like to grow up and become the king of Israel. But God made him a king. You know why God made him a king? Because God looked at him and said, he has a heart for me. Now Samuel, who was a man very discerning and he walked with the Lord, he looked at David's older brother, Eliab, he said, you know, this guy would make a great king. Big, strong, strapping, good-looking guy. What a king he'd make. God said, no, I've rejected him. But there's a little kid out watching sheep. He's got a heart for me. I'll make him king. Sometimes you and I look at life and say, listen, I've got to climb this ladder. I've got to get up to the top. I want to climb to the top. I want to get up there and make more money. I want to become the president of the company. I want to get up there. Did you know God can put you up there if he wants you up there? But God's looking for hearts that are sold out to him. And God can take somebody with the right heart and move them right up to the top if that's where he wants them. And the whole challenge of this idea of going to work is whatsoever you do, you do it heartily for the Lord. Your reward will come from the Lord. You go out tomorrow to work and understand the reason you are there is to be a testimony for Jesus Christ. That means work hard. That means do your best. That means be honest. That means uphold your Christian testimony because you are there for Christ. That's why you're there. There's another area. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13 and verse 17 says this. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. It doesn't tell us exactly who it's talking about except by what it says in the next couple of phrases. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account. Now the context of this challenge is the context in which we find ourselves tonight. It's the context of God's ministry, God's work, the church. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves because they watch for your soul. I want to ask you something. Who in the midst of this church watches for your soul? As they that must give an account. Well, obviously, it's your pastor and those who have been gathered around him to work in that capacity. They're the ones that watch for your soul. They're the ones that have to give an account for what happens in this church. And it's in that context God says, hey, there's authority here that I've established. Obey them in this context. Submit yourselves to them. Because God made the appointment. Now, we understand in a Baptist church, we believe in congregational rule, but pastoral leadership and authority. And God makes the appointment. And I'm not sure I even need to say this in this church. Pastor's been here a long time, well-established, et cetera. But listen, I'll just say it anyway. If the God of heaven is going to give a burden and a vision for this ministry to somebody, to whom will he give it? He's not going to give it to the lady who runs a nursery, I'll guarantee you that. He's going to give it to the shepherd whom he has appointed. Pastoral leadership. 
understand God's system of authority for the church. Our conference, however, is family, isn't it? Let's look at two other areas. Go back with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 3 again. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18. We'll be talking more about this as our conference goes along. But look at verse 18. Here's what it says. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Now there is a challenge. Notice is not given to the husband. That's not God saying, now husbands, listen, you need to make sure your wife is in submission to you. No, it's not talking to husbands. It is God, through Paul, talking to wives. He says, you, as a Christian wife, submit yourself to your husband. You do it. God tells you to do it. God doesn't tell the husband to do anything in this regard. He says, Christian wife, submit yourself. Now, Paul doesn't tell the believers at Colossae, the same thing he tells the believers at Ephesus, but in the Ephesians epistle, he expands it just a little bit. When he says that the wives are to be in subjection to the husbands, why? Because the husband is the head of the wife. Just that simple. The husband is the head of the wife. Who says so? Who says so? Is it because the husband says so? Do you get married and go off on your honeymoon, have a wonderful time? Come back from your honeymoon, he lifts her up, carries her over the threshold, puts her down, says, by the way, honey, I've been thinking while we've been on this honeymoon, and I've decided I'm going to be the head around here. Is that the way it works? Maybe it's a little bit different. Maybe you come home from the honeymoon, he carries her over the threshold, puts her down, and she says, oh, honey, all during our honeymoon I've been thinking about this. I think you ought to be the head. It's not it either. Do you wait till you have five kids, have one of those family meetings? All right, kids, we're going to have a little election here today. We need to get ahead of this family. Anybody have a nomination? I think I'd like to nominate Dad. Good point. We'll take it. Is that it? Why is the husband the head? Now, it's a little bit funny to talk about it in these terms, but do you realize there are still a whole lot of families where this point is being debated? Who is the head? The man. Why? Because God made the appointment. That's why. That verse in Ephesians that we will see a little bit later on, it doesn't say, wife, be in subjection to your husband, because the husband ought to be the head. It doesn't say that. The husband is the head. Because God said so. That's why. Now, there's a lot of families that don't work God's way. There's a lot of families that are hurting because if the God of heaven is going to give direction to your family, he is going to direct your family through the one that he has appointed to be the head. It's God's appointment. Now, the simple fact is there are some ladies who say, well, you know, I would be in submission if he would do things the way I want him to. Not it. And there's also some men who say, I didn't really understand this when I got married. I don't want to be the head. I don't want all that responsibility. Too bad. You've got it. 
and you're going to answer for it. Because God says, you, sir, are the head. And he says to the wife, you, ma'am, submit yourself to your husband. Because God set up the system. There's another passage. Colossians 3 and verse 20 says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. What a very simple verse. Children. Number of children here tonight. Children. Obey your parents, little prepositional phrase, in all things. Isn't that simple? Parents are not in charge because they're bigger. Parents are not in charge because they're older. Parents are in charge because the God of heaven gives children to parents. And when God gives children to parents, He says, children, obey your parents in all. Brother Griffith, I would do that, but you know, I'm not sure I got the right parents. Ever see kids feel that way? I'm not sure I got the right parents. I mean, you know, the kid next door, he's allowed to do anything, go anywhere, dress the way he wants. I'm really sure I belong over there. No, you don't. You belong right here. You young people here tonight, do you know you got the right parents? Did you know that God knew the parents you needed and you got the right parents? And God says to you, children, obey your parents in all things. There are a couple of times when this becomes a problem. Of course, there's always the standard problems. Kids not doing what they're told. We understand that. And every parent here was once a kid, believe it or not, young people. And we were all bad, just like you're bad from time to time. But when it really becomes an issue, at least of late in my mind, two particular times, number one, when it comes time to go to college. Sometimes young people say, well, I want to go to this college, and my parents want me to go to that college. So what's the problem? Children, obey your parents in all things. That's a pretty simple verse, isn't it? Yeah, but you don't understand. You see, I've prayed about this. I have prayed, and I've talked to people, and I've read all the catalogs, and I am much more spiritually minded than my dad because I actually go to church much more than he does. Now, don't you think, since I've prayed about this, and I've talked to people, and I've read the catalogs, and I'm more spiritual than my dad, don't you think it would be okay for me to go ahead to this college even though my dad wants me to go to that college? Well, we could debate that except for this one thing. There's this verse in the Bible. That says, children, obey your parents. Isn't that a simple verse? Children, obey your parents. 
But you know something? I, listen, my dad isn't even saved. Let me read that verse again. Children, obey your saved parents. Doesn't say that, does it? Just says, children, obey your parents. Yeah, but the school I want to go to is a Christian college. My dad wants me to go to a secular college. Children, obey your parents. Now, I want you to know something. I know that what I am saying is something that an awful lot of people disagree with. There's an awful lot of pastors that disagree with and youth leaders, and I don't have the slightest idea how anybody feels about it here because I haven't talked to anybody about it. But I know how people think, hey, listen, you know, kids have to make these decisions. They're getting older now. Maybe you ought to go where they ought to go. If God wants them to go to a Christian college, they've prayed about it. You know, the only thing I can do is keep coming back to this book, folks. And you might not like it, you might not understand it, sometimes I don't understand it, but I do know this. I know that if the God of heaven wants a young person in a certain school, the God of heaven is great enough to get them there. That is not saying sin. You know, sometimes, you, oh, yeah, do that. You know, one of my dad says, get in the car, we're going to go rob the bank. Do I go with him? Has that happened to anybody lately? Children, obey your parents. As a matter of fact, some of you young people would do very well if you went to your mom and dad, whether they are saved, unsaved, spiritual, non-spiritual, whatever it is, and you would early on say to your mom and dad, listen, when it comes time for college, I want you to know now, I will go where you want me to go. Now, the other time it becomes critical is, oh, daddy, I love him. I, I really love him, daddy. And, he is a lot nicer than some of those guys at church. You mean you want to marry him? Children, obey your parents. Sometimes Mrs. Griffith and I are asked to sit down and talk to people who have problems in their marriage. One of the questions I almost always ask people is this. Did you have your parents' permission when you got married? And I can't tell you how many times the answer is no. Now, I confess to you, I don't understand how it all works. I really don't. I don't understand all these systems of authority, exactly what God does, how he does it. But I do know this. I do know the Bible is ex extremely plain. And I do know that God, who established authorities, works through authorities to direct our paths. Again, let's go back to government. Who likes some of the governmental things? Who likes some of the laws? Who likes some of the leaders? But we still believe God works through government and ultimately accomplishes His will. And the God of heaven, young people, will work through your parents. And I want to tell you, if you bypass the college message, you'd really do well, young people, to go to your mom and dad and say, I will never date, if you ever date, or marry anybody without your permission. 
And I don't mean you sweet girls. I don't mean where you're twisting your daddy's arm, you know, like, Daddy, he's the one, he's the one, he's the one. Okay, marry him. I don't mean that. I mean peace in your daddy's heart to say yes. Authority. Folks, we struggle with authority. We struggle with authority because we don't like authority. We want to do it our way. Young people struggle with authority. But listen, when it comes to government, when it comes to where you go out to work every day, where it comes to this church, when it comes to uh, husbands and wives, when it comes to parents and children, God set up the system. And the reason you and I have struggles and problems in these areas of derived authority is because the simple fact is many of us have yet to come to grips with the absolute authority of God. We haven't really dealt with His authority in our lives, and that's why we struggle with the rest of it. And there are some of us here who maybe need to deal with some of these areas. Some of you need to say, the God of heaven put me where I work. I better start working for Christ. I better reestablish my testimony for Him where I work. Or maybe it's in the context of this church and you need to deal again with what it means to have pastoral leadership and authority. Or maybe in your home, some of you wives need to say, hey, I need to deal with this. I have to submit myself to my husband. Or some of you young people struggling with authority of your parents, you need to get right with those. But listen, we'll struggle in those areas, especially if we haven't dealt with the authority of God who says to you and says to me, I have the right to do with you anything I want to do with you. Have you bowed the knee? Have you said, Lord, anything, anywhere? Lord, I submit myself. Here's my life. I put it on the altar. I present my body a living sacrifice. Lord, I'm taking my hands off my life and I am putting it before you. You rule my life. You run my life.